Hey folks, Jeff here. And today I'm with a new friend, somebody that I met over at the Integral European Conference and ended up on a bus with for three days as we roamed the Hungarian countryside in the uh, post-conference uh, little holiday. So it's been fun and it's great to be with Aftab Omer from California in uh, Bay Area. And Aftab is the president of Meridian University. He's got his own degrees from MIT and a doctorate from Brandeis. And Meridian University in the Bay Area is in its 22nd academic year and has programs in psychology and education arts uh, and is starting an integral MBA in creative enterprise that I think is really exciting. So there'll be some real uh, research being done uh, in practice uh, around the integral movement and the integral worldview uh, in this center. So I'm excited about that. And Aftab is also just a, one of the most interesting people I've met in terms of really helping us to understand the struggle, really, that is going on between the Muslim world, the Western world, and the sort of hotspots of the global political scene in general. Aftab was born in Pakistan, has found his way here, uh, very successful, obviously, president of the university. So I'd like to start by, first of all, saying good morning, Aftab, and welcome. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, I'm so happy to be having this conversation with you. And uh, I have good memories of our time in Hungary, of, uh, <laughs> uh, of watching you uh, represent the U.S. Uh, uh, symbolically and otherwise in some of our collective inquiries at the conference, and uh, glad to be in conversation. Yes, indeed. Well, Aftab, as I mentioned, you are from Pakistan, and you obviously have the karmas of that civilization. You're Muslim yourself, living in America, uh, really a foot in both worlds, I'm assuming, I'll just ask you to describe a little bit of your history and experience and, you know, sort of the the position or the perspectives that you take at, the, at this point in your life. Jeff, I grew up mostly in Pakistan, uh, but also in uh, India, Turkey, and Hawaii. Hmm. Uh, my mother worked for the United Nations. Hmm. So... You might say I got an early dose of postmodernity. And of course, while I was growing up, we were not in this particular phase of globalization that we intend when we use the term now. But that experience of um, growing up in these different places uh, was good, good preparation to... Uh, to be now living in the Bay Area, although I've lived on the East Coast uh, and the Midwest of the United States, and uh, so have a sense of some of the some of the regional cultural difference. And uh, and as someone who didn't grow up in the U.S. Uh, uh, except for the time in Hawaii, uh, there's uh, even these regional differences, culturally speaking, have for me been significant. So I'm hmm. excited that uh, we're going to be talking about uh, culture and politics, and you're the person to do this with. <laughs> well, I, I always think that, uh, and I'm actually quite jealous personally, having grown up in America, and I've been through a couple of different cultures through America and so forth, but I've always thought that, that really one of the engines of continued cultural and consciousness evolution is that more and more people live in different cultures. You know, for most of human history, we didn't travel more than 10, maybe 20 miles away from where we grew up, where we were born. And now there you are, you're in Turkey, you're in India, you're, you're growing out of Pakistani soil uh, in, in the U.S. There, there's something that is almost intrinsically integralizing about that. You just have to take multiple perspectives as you do this. 
And I would think that would be just, you know, enriching in, in developmentally. Would, wouldn't you agree? Very much so, uh, Jeff. Uh, it's, uh, it's a privilege, uh, and, uh, and more and more people have that privilege now by the diverse perspectives that constitute the postmodern situation. So to have an early version of that uh, definitely uh, is a catalyst to integral consciousness yeah. uh, for, for, for anybody, unless, of course, some kind of reactionary ghetto enclosed uh, community gets formed, which also mm -hmm. happens. So one can be... Um, and we're seeing this, for example, in uh, various countries in Europe where Muslim immigrants have not been well integrated. And, right. uh, and so we're seeing some regressive and reactionary kinds of enclosure by, by self-enclosure and also, of course, uh, under the press of, of racism and anti-Islamism. Um, right. But the but the friction of multiple perspectives has both excitement and difficulty in it, and um, surely sets the the soil for for integral consciousness. Yeah, indeed. So let's then turn that integral consciousness on this topic of Pakistan, obviously a hot spot in the world, in the middle of. A bigger hotspot in the world. As a Muslim, as somebody who has that sort of indigenous karma of this part of the world and this culture and, and worldview, what can you tell us that you don't think we already know? Or what, how can you help us understand the soul and the perspective of the Pakistani people from the inside? Well, Islam, as you know, began in Saudi Arabia about 1,400 years ago. My own ethnicity uh, within the South Asian context makes my heritage a fairly recent conversion to Islam, so it only takes maybe three or four, at the most, five generations in my family before conversion. So. Uh -huh. um, could you tell could you tell us what you were before five generations ago well uh this part of South Asia was Hindu oh okay all right so so what what we see in you know there's uh, over half a billion uh, Muslims in South Asia mm -hmm. but this conversion happens much later, and so there really is a significant difference between the Muslims of South Asia and the Muslims of the Middle East right. uh, because of this. And uh, there's a way in which the collective field, uh, generationally, we, we were exploring uh, uh, intergenerational uh, fields and dynamics in Budapest. And um, when we do some some process like that uh, with the Muslims of South Asia, fairly soon there is the encounter with the, you might say, the Hindu layer. And, uh -huh. and then, it's, then, it's, and then it's, it's Hindu all the way down. <laughs> <after that. laughs> and wow. so, so that, has, that has all kinds of implications in terms of yeah. the particular kind of paganism that uh, Hinduism as a religion constitutes. Yeah. Uh, but then, as you know, that uh, there are dimensions of Hinduism that are, are monotheistic and, uh, yeah. Yeah. you know, on, on the way to non-dual sure. uh, mystical Hinduism. So, uh, uh, namely well, Hinduism, Yeah, Hinduism, like uh, Islam, uh, spans many developmental layers and many different typological cultures. You know, cultures have personalities, and like we do. There's almost an Enneagram of culture we could, we could imagine. So I'm interested in what you would say it would, that would be about the Pakistani 
uh, identity. And I, I know that they're, um, well, I'll, I'll just stop there and, and let you, you tell me. The term nouveau riche often implies uh, the newly rich who are insecure <laughs> and, and therefore are in various kinds of compensatory modes around the fact that while they're rich, they're newly rich. <laughs> and uh, so there are dynamics like that. Uh, there is a sense of uh, um, needing to prove more, uh, to be more demonstrative. There's a sense that uh, the Muslims of the Middle East, uh, they speak Arabic, they're from the same ethnicity <laughs> as uh, the Prophet himself. Uh, so that definitely creates a certain kind of uh, extra compensatory assertion of identity and conviction yeah. that that would uh, show up. Then there's also the impact of actually speaking the language of the Quran, Arabic. Mm -hmm. uh, so the national language in uh, Pakistan is Urdu. And uh, uh, essentially the same language is spoken across the border in India, but it's referred to as Hindi. Hmm. Um, but this is, you know, this is the language of, of uh, pre-colonial and colonial India. Mm -hmm. and, col and colonized India. Call it India, call it Urdu. And... Uh, uh, when it is written in India, it is it uses a, a, a different script. But uh, across the border north in Pakistan, um, uh, like uh, like Farsi in Iran, the script is Arabic script, hmm. uh, uh, slightly modified of, um, uh, with some of the pronunciation signs not being used, and and, and a few letters can be different sometimes. So. Uh, the Muslims of Pakistan can read Arabic for the most part with a little bit of stretch, but don't understand it. Hmm. And the prayers are in Arabic. So that also creates a certain dynamic, somewhat analogous to Catholics praying in Latin, mm -hmm. um, but, but, not, but mostly not knowing what, what the Latin means. You know? yeah. um, which makes me curious about, uh, about how you were raised in this respect, Jeff. In Pennsylvania, yeah, I was raised in just a fundamentalist church, an independent Bible church. We called it. We we were definitely different than Catholics. We did not pray in Latin. It was kind of a uh, intentionally humble gospel of just turning your life over to Jesus and being saved, and you know recognizing your sinful nature, and you know pretty much, you know doctrinally mainstream Protestant in that way, maybe a little bit more conservative. So that. Now, my religious education has um, grown a lot because of my studies in Buddhism, and particularly Tibetan Buddhism. And Tibetan Buddhism, I was thinking a little bit about it as you were talking uh, about different aspects of it's particularly hitting that strata. I love that hitting that strata of Hinduism, once you, you know, scratch through the first five generations of your of Muslim and you find that sort of there's that pagan thing. And that's true of Tibetan Buddhism. Tibetan Buddhism has a lot of, um, you know, tribal and animistic kind of, it came out of a more animistic culture. And, um, you know, it's just interesting to see this, um, blossoming and all the mixing and you know combinations of karmas and religion that you know it's it's like almost like I always think of integral as, as giving us a Google map and we can raise the resolution on things so we can see that this thing that we thought was just Christianity or Islam is actually has all kinds of topographies and streams and migrations and karmas within these religions that are swirling around and, you know, <laughs> doing their thing for good and ill. Uh, and, um, and I think we're learning that. I mean, the, the education 
that um, we see in the West um, around Islam. It's still, you know, pretty good guy, bad guy, and, and, and cartoonish, but it's more complex than it was. And, you know, I think we have a ways to go. And this is why, you know, it's so interesting to talk to you and, and get, you know, a more nuanced and sophisticated understanding of, you know, just, you know, how, how can we be more skillful? Uh, or what, how can we think differently? What should be done in these, you know, uh, these explosive areas like northwest Iraq at the moment? Um, uh, do you want to get into any of that sort of thing? Aftab, any uh, thoughts on the immediate politics? Sure, sure. Well, you know, um, you were speaking about your early Protestant experience and then, uh, and then later on the Tibetan Buddhist experience. And you referred to the tribal and one could also say shamanic, the shamanic, yes. underlying shamanic legacy. Yeah. And um, following Eliade, if we take the view that, uh, that uh, what we refer to as shamanic experience is the earliest arising uh, in terms of uh, imagery and, uh, and symbol yep. uh, of uh, what has then come to be religious consciousness and, and then eventually religious institutions. Yes. So if this is true and that underlying our nature and the way in which the evolutionary impulse has this magna, you know, this magna in the volcano sense of fiery shamanic consciousness, yep. which is looking for anchor in both cultural practices and social structure for, for initiation, in effect, yep. To, yep. Uh, to, for embodiment, to, to have a place in one's life in one's relationships, and um, and so we know that um, that the mythic structure of consciousness, um, in its healthier actualization, offers that. Um, yes. Uh, both yes. in terms of uh, an initiation that confirms belonging, an initiation that confirms the Authenticity, authenticity of one's collective uniqueness, not 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 individual uniqueness. That's that, uh, as we know, comes later. But to have that authenticity, authenticity of one's collective uniqueness and belongingness be confirmed, be confirmed yeah. by one's fellow tribe, yeah. um, but also confirmed by the other then potentiates a engagement of difference that can work and so for yeah. example we have we see in uh, in andalusia uh, we actually know historic with some historical specificity that this happened um, well, we know from the experience of Muslims, Christians, and Jews uh, uh, creating culture together in uh, Spain, in Andalusia. We know that. We know is that. that a, is, that a, uh, is that a part of the country, or is that a? T t I, I don't know that term, Aftab. That uh, and Andalusia is uh, A N D A. L-U-S-I-A. And right. that, of course, you know, is, is an Arabic uh, um, word which has stayed. Um, and, um, and what it does it a, mean? It is a, well, it is a state or province uh -huh. in Spain, like, uh -huh. like, like Catalonia. Got it. And so um, 
when we even now go to this region of Spain, Andalusia, and particularly in cities like Seville, uh, Cordoba, Granada, we see this phenomenal legacy of what, how the Muslims, Christians, and Jews lived together, created culture, and helped to helped Europe to come out of the Middle Ages, how the influence on, on subsequently on the Renaissance and uh, all the translations of uh, uh, the Greek classic texts. All of this has to do with a profound blossoming, early blossoming of uh, integral consciousness. I'm, I'm sure different from, from the integral consciousness we're in the midst of here in, in North America. Right. Um, but as we know that, uh, um, that this has happened in several other places, including classical Greece. Yes. Um, so right now, though, what we're seeing is, uh, is a deep failure of, of the mythic structure sta- stabilizing. Mm-hmm. And that has to do with not only with dynamics intrinsic to Islam, for example, the Shia-Sunni conflict that is so intense now in uh, Iraq, in northern Iraq, Syria, and it is the it is the substrate for the opportunism of ISIS right now, which mm-hmm. which won't last long. It can't last long for all kinds of structural structural reasons. But nevertheless, it shows us symptomatically what the anguish what the anguish of a people is when the mythic structure is not stabilized enough, not integrated enough to be able to uh, then function well mentally with all the mental demands of uh, of modernity. Yes. No, it's true. And why would you say that, or what, what would you say are the reasons for that, uh, for that lack of stabilization, at least in that particular part of the world or that strata? Uh, and, and also a, a little bit about the structural weaknesses or dynamics that, you know, mean ISIS uh, won't last for long. And I actually agree with you, but I want to hear how you see that. Well, speaking first to the to the structural dynamics issue there, uh, to actually govern a region means having an economic infrastructure, and there are basic contradictions like having a oil refinery but not having access to oil fields, at least not yet. Um, and uh, and the particular way in which the this region that they're claiming. Uh, is landlocked and uh, what the challenges would be to uh, to actually uh, uh, export oil uh, that so without without that economic infrastructure this will have about the shelf life of a adolescent takeover of East LA <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, well, it's really terrific analogy on top. I, I mean, I, it really helps me understand it. I mean, it can be scary when the adolescents take over, and you know, everybody will run for the hills for right when they first show up because they're scary. But over time, you know, they just don't have the goods to really, you know. Hold it together. That's right. That's right. Yeah. There's uh, not up against modernity. Uh, Sorry. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, even if they had the the elements, the ingredients to establish an economic infrastructure, uh, the the uh, consciousness demands of governance would uh, yes. would in itself be too destabilizing. Which is why the region is how it is. So between Saddam and Assad. That level of uh, uh, that le- developmentally, that level of leadership um, 
would would destroy a governing structure even if it was provided, uh, which right. which it rarely can be, which is something the U.S. is uh, still trying to learn in terms of in terms of export. You, you broke a, up a little bit off top. You broke up a little bit. Could you say that last part, particularly what the U.S. needs to understand again? I was speaking about how the the, the consciousness requirements of leadership, as well as the structural requirements of governance, neither are present, and uh, along with uh, along with uh, the absence of economic infrastructure. So, yeah. so these these boys, and I say boys not to insult them. They they already feel deeply disrespected, dishonored by the by the particular way in which their their life world is situated within the global problematique. But I say boys just simply to emphasize. The, the developmental failure yeah. uh, that comes about because of the particular cultural and social structural conditions that their fate is unfolding in. And if we looked, I mean, depending on, you know, depending on what perspective we take, um, I'll begin with just a, a social structure, structural perspective to say that that to understand what is happening, we really have to look at at least a thousand years of colonization, but particularly the last three to five hundred years of colonization, and what impact that has to mythic, to mythic and magic structures, yeah. and uh, and when when the integration, the inclusion of those structures is so becomes so problematized in terms of identity, how problematic it is for people who do have a whole wider mental capacities. Uh, and uh, as we know, math and science scores uh, in some Middle Eastern countries are, are better than, than U.S. scores, for example. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, but those mental comp competencies actually in some ways create a deep, deep rift in in the heart, in the soul. Yeah. Um, but to understand why the mythic and magic structures are so problematized, we need to come at it, obviously, you know, from the perspectives of all four quadrants. But I'm beginning by emphasizing the social structural because that conjures up the large-scale impact of colonization. Yeah. Yeah, so colonization, so the colonizers come in, basically, it's particularly in the last 100-plus years, uh, as, you know, modern, at least technologically. So they have the tanks and the guns and whatever. Um, but even before that, hundreds of years of colonization uh, where the existing mythic and magic structures were basically, if, if not wiped out, you know, marginalized from the, you know, sort of central discourse of the country from then on, right? Something like that? Very much so. Very much so. Um, I'll give you an, an image to sort of conjure the particular contradictions of identity consciousness for people in the situation we're discussing. So imagine a Muslim cardiologist, highly trained. A Muslim what? A Muslim cardiologist. Okay, yes, got it. And even cardiac surgeon. Uh, so every day, uh, this man or woman, usually uh, almost always a woman, goes to work, um, uh, does cardio cardiology or cardiac surgery, uh, very technical, very modern. But then depending on where he lives and his particular family, he takes breaks through the course of the day for uh, the three Muslim prayers that are during the workday, in effect. 
mm-hmm. um, uh, the the afternoon prayer and the late afternoon prayer fall right within the workday, and then depending on the season, the the prayer at sunset can also fall within the business business hours. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, physicians don't have regular business hours. But the point is that this person, this modern Muslim cardiologist, is coping with uh, the traditions of Islam, the five times prayer, along with working as a physician. And then he goes to bed at some ungodly hour, as physicians often do. He wakes up two or three hours later to go to the bathroom and comes into the family room and his daughters, his teenage daughters, are watching Dynasty. I should say, if, uh, you know, I'm realizing, Jeff, that some of our millennial friends probably don't even know what Dynasty <laughs> refers to. So we should pick a uh, current, uh, um, what is a... a, a, a the Kardashians. Like the Kardashians, okay. So... <laughs> So the daughters are watching Dynasty. What does he do? He goes to the bathroom and then he goes back to bed. Yeah. And then uh, um, his daughters pray in the morning. And, and so you can just see what these contradictions are. And so what, what does a person do with their mental structure, which they're drawing on at work, and their nope. mythic magic structures that make, the heart of uh, family and community life fulfilling yeah. and what kind of compartmentalization does that take and and if your functioning is based on that compartmentalization and then something disrupts that compartmentalization those silos what will happen then, then you know yeah. how does the grain flood out of that silo yeah. and who what gets buried under that that onslaught. Yeah. What you're talking about, Aftab, is really just one of the key problems of the world in general, is how, as, as Ken often estimates, 70% of the people on the planet are pre-modern or below in terms of their consciousness. How they live in this world that is developing so fast with this juggernaut of modernity, with our, what is it, 1,300 satellites, you know, crisscrossing the sky, pumping down pornography, for God's sakes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Dynasty, the Kardashians, that's just the beginning of it. And all of it, it's just the scenario you, you, you paint of the cardiologist. I mean, there's so many people living in so many different world spaces. That it's amazing. <laughs> it's certainly no wonder the world goes occasionally nuts. And a profound question and challenge for us and for our inquiry is uh, what constitutes effective integral action in response to the, the intensity of this, of this anguish? You know, it's not World War II. It's not the Holocaust. And yet in the specific places where the fire is burning at the time, the experience is as, as intense. It's as and, bad as uh, it's ever been anywhere. Exactly, exactly. You know, it's so, so Aleppo uh, isn't any better than the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's just not as large a scale. Yeah. And so profound questions arise for us as integral practitioners as to what our integral praxis is in relation to the the depth and breadth of the situation and its agony and how do we align with all the the creative evolutionary impulse that is trustworthy and yet it needs our skills on the surfboard to go somewhere <laughs> with with those waves, you know. Yeah. So oh, beautifully, uh, beautifully put, Aftab. What? So what do you think? What? Do you have some sense of what the integral response is, or how we're to hold this, and how we might actually be a little bit helpful? You were speaking earlier about how both travel and actually 
living in different parts of the world has intrinsically a catalytic effect on integral consciousness. And we can draw from that in terms of how does one create, what is it about those circumstances? And we can see that there is something about bringing worldviews into friction, but into creative friction. Yes. And, uh, and therein lies some significant elements of integral praxis. Um, one of the ways we've been speaking about it at Meridian University is by focusing on transformative learning and making a clear distinction between transformative learning on the one hand and informational learning on the other. Mm-hmm. So you're aware of uh, lectica assessments, for instance? No, I'm not sure I am. Electica is an organization that is working to shift how we assess learning in schools and in higher education. It's quite influenced uh, by uh, integral theory. Hmm. Clint, actually, Clint Hughes is quite involved. Um, oh. uh, Zach Stein is a, is a co-founder. Mm-hmm. And right now, Meridian University... Uh, uh, Zach Stein has come on faculty, so we're engaged in bringing on some of these lectical assessments, which and they measure they measure the kind of development that we're most interested in, meaning opening the later structures of consciousness mm-hmm. and uh, emphasizing both their opening those emphasizing both the transcending and the include, including. Mm-hmm. And this would be a moment just to say something about inclusion. We know that uh, uh, that the process, that the developmental evolutionary process uh, requires both. And in terms of our learning practice, our transformative practice, that guides our integral action, it seems important to especially focus on the challenge of inclusion right now because we're seeing the level of disruption at the mythic and magic levels mm-hmm. uh, so intensely. If, if you know, when, when these young men, who many of them who grew up in uh, uh, Europe, or, or North America, Australia, when they speak, it is evident of the level of disruption yeah. and wounding of, of the magic and the mythic. Yeah, yeah uh, we saw, uh, Sue, maybe you did as well, the, uh, got a lot of attention, the YouTube video uh, produced by the ISIS group, by the Western yeah. ISIS jihadis who were uh, directing their message to Western young Muslim men and talking about the happiness that they were feeling and the honor that they were feeling. And there is no, I think the, the name of the video was, there is no life without jihad. And just how deeply meaningful their lives were in comparison with you, young men of the West, who are shopping and sleeping in your comfortable beds and watching TV instead of coming here and dying with your brothers. Uh, it's uh, you know, very, very powerful. And, and this particular narrative discourse has been around for decades. It has gone from the warehoused immigrants of the Middle East yeah. and Europe. It has gone from there on, on to YouTube. Yeah. So this is the narrative that built Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, what, what you're talking about, even with the, the, this sort of higher level of learning and consciousness, so we can see that clearly one of the obvious downsides of, of ISIS publishing this video is that it reads uh, young men who may actually go and fight. So that's, you know, a bad thing. But what it also does is there were millions of hits on that video. A lot of people saw it. Uh, and they just got a transmission of what these people, you know, that they're not demons. They're not 
crazy. They're not suicidal. They're actually um, holy warriors who are lit up by the, you know, life that they're living. And that actually helps us to, you know, expand our own understanding of what's going on in the world. So this is an upside of millions of people seeing that video. It is truly an upside. And, uh, and while there has been significant opportunist use, use of YouTube and distribution of videos uh, all the way back to bin Laden and before, you're so correct in emphasizing that uh, to the degree that integral consciousness is in, in inherently a, a, a global consciousness, uh, that the net and YouTube are really helping us on our way to integral with, with, all, with all, the, all the mishaps and, and agonies therein. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I hate those ag that agony part. Yes, yes, and it brings out what <laughs> we're choosing, what we're choosing to do with with our lives, and, uh, no, and what you know, and what our friends and colleagues are doing with it. And uh, being in that in that hall in Budapest, and and seeing how how well the Europeans did this on this first occasion of yeah. bringing themselves together. Uh, held a kind of template of what can happen yeah. uh, globally. Okay. Yeah. No, I think that's a really wonderful observation, and I, I share it. This current conflict, the Christians went through it. There's, there's uh, evolutionary potency in it. I think as Westerners, you know, and as integralists, we want to know, so where could we help and where does what we think is helping actually hurting and what are our own motives and what are our own secret motives and, you know, just this ever-expanding awareness of all of the different things that are happening there and here, um, you know, this, this intelligence that we're gaining has great value. It just helps us to be more intelligent in our response and um so i guess i i, I would um, segue into asking you so what do you think of our response how do you think obama's doing and um w w if you were president what would you be doing well the restraint uh, yeah. the restraint has been important and um and then there is the well there's there's the political agenda and then there's the humanitarian agenda then there's also the covert covert operations and and public operations um, my hunch is that the Obama administration is holding all four of those the political and the humanitarian and as well as what can be public and what can be and what must be covert Right. Um, and a critical issue here is what do the intelligence organizations provide by way of information to the Obama administration and the Pentagon? And that's where the rub is because the enormous, difficult to imagine disconnect between the massive intelligence operations that the U.S. government has working for it and the then implementation of U.S. foreign policy both militarily and economically that disconnect is so stark um, and um, you know there was this moment in the first year of uh, Barack Obama's presidency uh, he comes in uh, at the beginning of 2009 and some point in 2009 it could have been 2010 he goes to Cairo and does a speech at the University of Cairo yeah and it's a good speech it, it it's a balanced speech in terms of saying what saying what needs to be said to 
to promote collective healing yeah. and, uh, and inclusion, the great horse of inclusion. Yeah. On the one hand, and, and, and then not blowing his, his base and his, uh, uh, and his credibility in the U.S. And he pulled that off. Of course, you know, people, many of the, uh, many Republicans sort of bashed him for it. But, but that goes, obviously, that goes with, uh, with the territory, even when uh, Barack Obama said that one of the qualities he would be looking for uh, for the next Supreme Court justice that he was in a position to appoint, he said uh, that empathy was a big, uh, a big criteria for him. And uh, you'll recall, you'll recall the way they they went after him on that. Right. <laughs> and you know, like empathy. Actually, ironically, Jeremy Rifkin's book, The Empathic Civilization, had just come out, so there was even yeah. a buzz about that at the time. Yeah. Um, and, no, it's and hard to fact, be. It's hard hard to imagine being anti-empathy, but th- 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 there we saw it. Well, Laura Laura Ingram on Fox found a way to do it. Of course. And no, I, I think you're right. You were right a minute ago, uh, Aftab, when you were saying that anything Obama does, it just comes with the territory that there's going to be blowback from his political enemies. And so, you know, this Cairo speech was, I think, one of the most integral speeches that I've ever heard a politician give. I couldn't imagine that the president of the United States gave that speech. It was really remarkable. But it has been a rallying cry for the right because it had a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of acknowledgement of America's past sins, uh, because it was too empathetic to the Muslims and to the Arabs. And this is never going to fly with the, you know, right, which is basically the interior of the right is still pre-modern in the sense that they still are ethnocentric. They really don't see, they don't have a world-centric view, and they see the devil at work, and, you know, he's the other, and his minions are the other. And so th- they're actually operating in a lot of the same kind of vibration as the, you know, militants overseas. And this move that you just made in our conversation to speak as much as you can from and as the interior of the people we were just speaking about, Mm-hmm. is, is uh, of course, such a critical move to be able to make. Uh, so, so, you know, we, you know we, we love to lampoon Sarah Palin, for instance. Um, well, but we do. What is, you know, what is, what is the... Um, the question here is, um, Sarah Palin, this is not true for, but some of the other folks are very educated and very... Uh, uh, very, very competent. Uh, let's take uh, Irving Kristol, for example. Uh, if we wanted to go back for a boomer uh, reference to William Buckley and how how smart these people are in, in yeah. the mental mental competency sense, and yeah. yet the ethnocentric worldview. Yeah. is no, evidence true. of of the wounding, the mythic magic wounding, and how much inclusion of the mythic, how much the challenge now is uh, the inclusion of the mythic and magic, and how can we as integral practitioners, we who've had the good fortune and privilege, um, to to have all the support in terms of our own emerging integral consciousness, yeah. to bring to to this work of inclusion and and yeah. I hear the way you're I, I hear the way you're speaking about people with ethnocentric worldviews and just the way you're speaking about ethnocentrism feels so important in terms yeah. of our work well I actually think it's one of the things we can do off top as integral practitioners is intentionally inhabit the world space of these of other people, you know, just in general. And, and, and to inhabit, if, if I want to inhabit a pre-modern ethnocentric world space, I can find my own, actually. I remember it. And there's a certain warmth that arises in my belly when I feel like I'm the child of the one true God. 
and that I'm on the right side of this epic cosmic battle between good and evil. Oh, my God. What could be more delicious than that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and then I think about, okay, so now I've outgrown that. I'm into pluralism. I'm, I'm into seeing that religions have different ways of thinking, and they're all right. And, and, I, and that's a little more complicated, <laughs> a little more unsettling, and a little less warmth in my belly until I find sort of a new integration that is as stable, in a sense, as the old one, only just far more complex and capable and flexible and, you know, powerful. So something like that, right? Very true, very true. And I hear your developmental compassion. Yeah. I hear your developmental compassion and, and witnessed it in the way you participated in the constellation work that took place with uh, one or two hundred people uh, <laughs> in, in, uh, in Millenaris Park. And uh, we know compassion is a cap- capacity. We know it takes different forms as we move through and move into later structures. And how do we help catalyze this kind of developmental compassion? what you were speaking when you made that earlier reference to humility and the particular way in which humility was presenced in these Protestant communities uh, that you grew up in in uh, Pennsylvania. I imagine, and tell me how this imagining lands for you, but I just imagine a certain kind of transmission of true humility in these Protestant communities. Uh, something real and true gets transmitted, as we know, at every level. Yeah. And that transmission perhaps has boosted your coming to this developmental compassion that you embody. Well, well, that's a lovely thought, Aftab. I, I appreciate it, and it's one to ponder. You know, when I think back in my early, my childhood days in, in my traditional setting, there's a humility in the sense that our theology had no trappings. It was just very biblical and all of that. But there wasn't much of a humility when we thought that we were the ones going to heaven and the Catholics were the ones going to hell. You know? <laughs> it's funny how that humility thing works at ethnocentric. I mean, within our group, it was very much, you know, uh, expected and, and rewarded that you would not try to you know stand out and so forth but the group itself was definitely seen as operating the you know the purest of the truths that's right so there is yeah. there is some disconnect some di- compartmentalization yeah uh, and nevertheless people learn about personal humility yeah absolutely that's uh, at, right at the, and at That's that right. personal level, it can make such a huge difference in terms yeah. of, uh, I mean, if we look at Nick Carter's effectiveness, you know, so much has been said about his ineffectiveness. But if we look at his effectiveness, particularly in relation to the Camp David Accords, it's difficult to imagine uh, that his personal humility related to his Southern Protestant consciousness, yeah. uh, agriculture, you know, there was enough Wendell Berry in Jimmy Carter. Yeah, a plain, so, so that you the, might say. You know, yeah, so that the came, Camp David Accord made a huge difference. Yeah. No, indeed. And um, you can see uh, a certain kind of, I don't know if you'd see in terms of personality the same kind of humility in Obama, but you see a certain kind of restraint and realism that I think is, you know, I'm glad out of all the, the, the available candidates for being president that we got who we got at this point. Well said, well said. <laughs> and, 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 of course, the, you know, the Cairo speech epitomizes it. Um, and then on the downside, there is a, uh, you know, a, a friend and colleague, uh, Jim Garrison, did a blog on uh, Huffington Post, and his title was Obama the Fickle. Hmm. And, uh, and 
the the point that he was developing there is um and I'm right now I'm not remembering whether whether uh, this blog from Jim Garrison came in uh in the first term or second term. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure it was the first term. Mm-hmm. Uh, and during the first term, I very much continued to give uh, Obama the benefit of the doubt in terms of uh, the degree to which he was uh, not taking certain kinds of risks. In the second term, I felt now the conditions were right, not only by virtue of the fact that he did not have to run for re-election, but in various other ways to not be patient with the Republican gridlock. Yeah. Uh, worse than gridlock, really. Just uh, yeah. pure blocking. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I'm glad to see that, uh, that he's ramping up now. Yeah, me and, too. Uh, and uh, me too. And I'm expecting and hoping that we'll see a lot more of that. And uh, and uh, and I love the way when he said, "Let them, let them sue me." You know. <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just you know the battlefield has changed, and you know it it, it never stays the same. Off top, the whole you know this this world of ours just keeps on a spinning, and it's disorienting sometimes, but. Integral helps us to keep our bearings and bring a little more loving intelligence to the system that badly needs it. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, uh, some of this that we also need, and I, and I very much feel you're doing that, there's some of this we need to bring to sort of our own integral neighborhood. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I mean that more in the sense of the integral movement, integral organizations. The sectarian dynamics within the integral movement uh, in fact show how the the importance of developmental compassion uh, and how that needs to be cultivated amongst people who are very much far along in integral consciousness, particularly in the mental manifestations of integral consciousness. Yeah. No, it's true. I always think of something Ken said a while back, and that is, just because you're integral doesn't mean you can't be an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, the integral movement is, you know, darn it, still populated by humans. And... (laughs) You know, with all of the, uh, I, I love what you just said, integral sectarianism. I had never really put those two words together, but you're right. And, uh, you know, part of it is, I think, that just the natural process of evolution that, you know, different karmas and different tribes arise around different circumstances and questions and leaders and places. And then we sort of butt heads and and hopefully the truth will out and we move the ball. But it, mm-hmm. I, I always think of the, you know, the line that evolution is beautiful, but it's not pretty. And I think the, oftentimes that's a good description of the integral movement. And, and, and beautifully said. And, uh, <laughs> and, in, and, and, any, and any expectation we have that in this land where even the current economy traces its strength to slavery and the place of the Native American genocide and the place of of the traumas of immigration that that any expectation that this land our collaborations on behalf of integral agendas are going to be sympathy uh, is is a kind of uh Naivete, it is, that, yeah, a fantasy. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I think that's that's right. Yeah, we're carrying all of that. Beautiful, not pretty, is a good way to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is a, is a good way to mark mark the that the sort of the turning point in our understanding. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Aftab, we've been at it for a while, and I think it's. Uh, I, I have to move on and. 
it's the 4th of July. I have to go be patriotic now. So. It's a good day to have had this conversation, Jeff. It is a good day to have had this conversation. And, uh, and uh, I have so enjoyed it. And uh, Me too. Appreciating what you're up to. So thank you so much, Aftab Omer. You uh, get on with your day, and we'll stay in touch and uh, check in as the world keeps on turning. Thank you, Jeff. I'm delighted you're doing the Daily Evolver and uh, frequently tell people about it. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.